a lot of Christians are oblivious to the strong African roots. Like, you know, you go back to Acts chapter 2 from the very beginning, day of Pentecost. You see Egypt there. You see Libya there. You see, you know, um, but then if you go further on, Acts chapter 8, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, prior to Paul even making it to Rome or to Europe, um, it's in Africa. The Ethiopian Coptic Church, oldest church in the world, identifies themselves as part of that tradition of that Ethiopian who went back home it says in acts 8 that he goes back home he goes head south you know what i mean and uh and they say yeah that, that's where we come from welcome to listener created and produced by me sam holland today is part two of eat the meat spit out the bones featuring rasul berry and remember is there someone you'd like to hear on listener email me at samantha.holland at crew.org. Enjoy the show. It seems like an amazing apologetic for the truth of the gospel to me that African Americans would embrace the white man's religion, considering the conditions that they were living under for so long. I mean, I just think that's astounding it must be true why would have you thought about that (laughs) that's funny that you would ask the question that way and pose it because uh i think it depends who you talk to um but uh i actually did a sermon called white man's religion question mark um is um because in the there's there's been a, a strong um undercurrent of rejection of Christianity um, in the last, especially several decades, um, from those who desire and are moving toward uh, getting back in touch with their ethnic or cultural identity and roots. And a so and they because they see um, these are African Americans in particular, but this is kind of across the board. This is kind of a global missions evangelism issue that I think a lot of times people don't don't recognize is that because of the um, historical connection between uh, colonialism, oppression, um, power grabs, you know, the whole, you know, part of the trajectory of the going into the new world, God, gold, and glory, um, People have been very, uh, they've thrown the baby out with the bathwater. They said, okay, because European explorers and colonialists and oppressors and slave owners embrace Christianity, then we need to now reject Christianity because we only are Christians now because our oppressors were Christians. And um, and so for those of us who have faith, and um, especially in um in these, you know, marginalized communities, we are now having to create our own apologetic tools. And it's in the challenges. And I, I, I became a, a learner, a student of apologetics from the time I went to University of Pennsylvania because I was, I was having to figure out answers in defending my faith from the first time I became a Christian. Um, and, uh, but oftentimes when you look at the you know, the, the resources that are out there, you know what I mean? The, uh, 
evidence that demands a verdict or, you know, Norman Geisler's, you know, B Baker Encyclopedia of Apologetics or, you know, some of the, you know, C.S. Lewis stuff. And those are all things that are great and I have value, but they're not, they're answering different questions than the questions that are coming from my community of like, how could you, how could you embrace the, uh, you know, the faith of those who oppress you? And, um, and it's been an interesting journey how to respond to that question um, because I used to, and I think, again, just taking a cue from how I was kind of spiritually raised, um, spend more energy trying to dissect and critique why the things like, for example, like I mentioned, my parents converted to the nation of Islam or, you know, Sunni Islam or whatever, and just try to spend most of my energy critiquing why they don't stand up to the truth of, of Christ. And, and if there's a place for that, but more recently what I've discovered is actually more compelling and more important is to actually critique the thing that they are critiquing. So in other words, what most people who reject Christianity because of the, um, and this is a major issue right now. As a matter of fact, if I would say if there's the top primarily, primary um, issue, challenge of evangelism in, to African-Americans right now, I would say is this issue of a, a, a desire for ethnic identity that then feels like I have to reject Christianity and go back to an African historical religion that I, I would have, you know, my ancestors may have been a part of as opposed to this thing. So this is a, it's not a small topic. It's a huge topic. Do you think Black Panther is a part of that? Um, every, again, it's a, it's a huge topic. Everything is part of that conversation, but, uh, as a particular moment, Black Panther as a movie was so significant and transcendent, um, for what it meant and represented for all black cast or predominantly black cast to be in a big budget blockbuster movie, part of the Marvel cinematic universe, um, and all the records that it broke that, um, that, that wasn't really, I mean, there, there's, that wasn't really the main story. There. That's not the headline at all. I love black Panther. Went to go see it twice. Um, most of Christians I know are also very excited about it. Um, Christians, non-Christians, everybody could get along with the fact that this was an incredible and important cultural moment. There is obviously elements of, you know, um, you know, uh, I guess African, uh, you know, tribal religions that are kind of are part of the plot. But I mean, Thor is, you know, is a, is a Norse mythology, <laughs> you know what I mean? And nobody's like, wait a minute, you know what I mean? I've got to go back to my roots of Scandinavian, you know, you know, pagan worship because of Thor, but it's all built out of that. So I think in the Marvel universe, they kind of just take from all of these different themes and, and, and create a story. And, and so I, don't, I have not heard and seen a whole lot of, and, you know, people draw many different, and I think the specific stuff that Black Panther draws from is not a particular uh, tradition. It kind of creates its own tradition that, you know, that has symbols that are very um, significant or similar to things that are actual real, but that's not like a built on a belief system. But, you know, but the bigger piece of that I was trying to get to is the fact that what I've learned recently is that it's actually more important to be honest and sober about critiquing the version of Christianity that they are rejecting. And, and so instead of, so it's a, in actuality, 
like so this was one of the uh, questions I was having I was uh, we, were, we were doing some our church we were having a outdoor festival outreach and there was a woman that I got into a spiritual conversation with and she was exactly saying these things that she you know rejected you know Christianity as a slaveholder's religion white man's religion so I asked her this question I said um, okay so during slavery you had two different perspectives you had uh, whites, you know, especially slave owners, especially in the South, who defended and said that the Bible supported their owning black people as slaves, you know, and they would either draw from some stuff like the curse of Ham, you're cursed to be, you know, um, oppressed, you know, versus out of context like Ephesians chapter six, you know, slaves obey your masters. And or Colossians, you know, as well and say, hey, okay, based on these verses, this is what's supposed to happen. The interesting thing is you also have people, you know, black and white, um, like Frederick Douglass, like Harriet Tubman, like Sojourner Truth, like William Lloyd Garrison, like Harriet Beecher Stowe, who are making a theological argument that says, actually, based on Christianity, Slavery is a repulsion, repulsion of God. Like it's it's a, it's an abomination. It should never happen. It defaces the image of God and His fellow creatures, right? People that He've made. So then, my question is, who's right? Whose version of Christianity are you actually taking as authoritative? So she said, "Well, I mean, I I agree with Frederick Douglass or Harriet, you know, um, Tubman." Well, I said, well, if you agree with Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman, then you would disagree that Christianity is a white man's religion because they rejected. They were Christians that said, hey, the problem isn't the Bible. The problem isn't my faith. The problem isn't the book. The problem is the people who are misusing, misrepresenting the book for their sordid gain. Let alone the, the fact that Christianity did not originate there you go that's the other people. that's a very very important piece too but it's you know that and that's another uh important and super critical uh, and again this is where a lot of christians are oblivious to the strong african roots like you know you go back to acts chapter two from the very beginning day of pentecost you see egypt there you see libya there you see you know um but then if you go further on acts chapter eight philip and the ethiopian eunuch prior to paul even making it to rome or to europe um it's in africa the ethiopian coptic church oldest church in the world identifies themselves as part of that tradition of that ethiopian who went back home it says in acts eight that he goes back home he goes head south you know what i mean and uh and they say yeah that, that's where we come from and so it's very but then saint augustine tertullian um ignatius all of these um church fathers that upon which our theology and church history is built were north north africa was one of the one of the earliest centers after jerusalem of of the church but oftentimes that doesn't get taught because of uh, Eurocentrism, um, you know, because of, you know, just the privilege and preference of kind of writing out history of your, you know, that, 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 so that, so Christians don't even know that history to be able to rebut with those things. So, but you're absolutely right. It's a combination of having to people to understand, yo, we have to critique the version of Christianity that allowed not just slavery, but Jim Crow segregation um, and the continued efforts 
to uh, marginalize and oppress people while we hold to the, the Christianity of Christ. And the thing that's encouraging to me is when I read the book, I'm not making this stuff up. God has clearly made it clear who he's uh, that he's on the side of the oppressed. Obviously, I have I do not know what it's like to be black, to have a black heritage and all the history of of America as part of my story. But sometimes as a woman, I identify a little bit and I wonder if, you know, the passages about slavery that have been misinterpreted um, are like passages about women, which eventually will be unanimously interpreted differently. Have you thought about that? Uh, Yeah, I think uh, that's been the... You know, an area that I, um, you know, have leaned into, to borrow the Sheryl Sandberg's phrase of lean in um, over the last year in particular, I think the um, the Me Too movement uh, and, you know, just uh, the avalanche of of um, people sharing their story of uh, sexual assault. I remember when it was like happening um me turning to my wife and being like, man, I'm so shocked that all of these women have experienced, you know, sexual assault. Isn't that shocking? And she was like, no. And I was like, what? You're like, no, I'm not shocked at all. Um, I'm just shocked that they didn't come out sooner. And that was the, a key moment when I knew that my experience as a man had um, blinded me to, uh, and that there's an aspect of privilege there, that things I don't have to deal with, the ways in which you know, I go into a, uh, a a car dealership and I don't have to worry about how I might be getting railroaded because of someone sees me as, you know, less astute when it comes to, you know, uh, bargaining. Um, and so that began that process. And also seeing the, um, the silence uh, oftentimes of the church. So I actually preached a message a few weeks ago um, called Silence is Not Spiritual. Um, that uh, actually dealt with the issue of sexual assault and rape, and how do we uh, respond to this as uh, as a as a community? Um, there is definitely uh, some blind spots that I think have occurred and have happened um, in terms of how we engage an issue. And and so actually, I'm excited. This um, a couple of weeks from now, I'm actually going to be doing a sermon series called The Blessed Alliance, uh, which is based on there's this incredible Christian author named uh, Carolyn Custis James. I actually met her through uh, crew. Uh, um, Judy Douglas is friends with her. And um, and she's written a lot of books that has kind of created a new vision for what is it like? Uh, basically, it's a new vision that's in <laughs> kind of restoring an old vision <laughs> of the fact that from the very beginning in Genesis, uh, chapter you know one and two, where we see God create Adam and Eve, and He says, you know, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. That that passage has been um, only interpreted as a marriage passage, when in actuality, when you think about the context fully of what it meant for man and woman to be God's image bearers throughout the earth, that you know that that meant that in the same way that they were equally responsible for representing God's glory throughout the earth. And so what does it and, and so what does it look like for us 
as a group of kingdom people, as believers, to see each other as partners in the work of, um, of, 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 of seeing God's glory in this blessed alliance play itself out. The fact that God chose to reveal who he is in these two distinct, you know, genders and perspectives, I think is, I think we've maybe under, you know, estimated the power of what that means. And so we're going to be talking about that, um, you know, as a church. And I really hope not the goal is that we can walk away with a higher appreciation of each other. And I think this is where the kingdom vision of this goes beyond the worldly vision of this, which only kind of begins to devolve into power dynamics and who gets to be in charge and who gets to exert power over somebody else. And I think, you know, when I look back and again, this is uh, James's works um, have been really helpful. Half the church is a book. Maelstrom, she actually writes a book about masculinity, which is really good. I read that one. Yeah. Um, What it kind of uncovers is that there's a better story that, Jesus is telling through his church than simply who gets. Remember when he said, when you get authority, don't lord it over them like the Gentiles, but the greatest among you must be the servant. And what would happen if we all came into these discussions uh, in in our work with that kind of mentality? Um, I think it blows the doors off the way that this is the narrow way that that discussion has been kind of talked about in the context of the church. And so, you know, we're stepping into that. Um, and it's been really encouraging to see how the women in our church have been incredibly uh, encouraged by us talking about those things. Mm. Yeah, I saw you mention that silence is not spiritual. I think on Twitter or on Facebook, I also noticed that you'd been tweeting quite a bit about Kanye West and some of the things that he's been saying publicly Well, I guess I just want to know what kind of an impact his remarks have had on you personally and how you think it's affecting society, if you can speculate on that, or maybe you know firsthand. Sure. Yeah. And just for those that may be listening and like, what did he say? Because he says so many things. (laughs) Um, uh, The the main thing, um, well, he first kind of got some kind of raised eyebrows when he uh, he kind of posted an image of him wearing a Make America Great hat um, and began to kind of refer to uh, Donald Trump, President Trump, in very glowing terms. Um, that was, I, I was indifferent to that. Um, he then had a TMZ uh, interview in which he uh, was talking about this idea of free thinking and how he's a free thinker and how him thinking freely has kind of emancipated him from the ways that especially black people in his mind have been kind of conditioned to think about politics and about history. And in particular, what he said was that... um, in talking about this aspect of free thinking and talking about what it means to free yourself from those limitations, he says slavery was um, a a phenomenon for 400 years. That sounds like a choice to me. Like you have to make the choice to be in bondage for 400 years, basically, is what he said. And, um, you know, I watched the entire 
interview for context, for, you know, background, so I wasn't cherry-picking a, you know, particular just statement taken in, you know, out, not in the right context. But what I saw when I read the whole thing um, more than confirmed the, what the soundbite sounded like. Um, and uh, And there was a very, you know, thoughtful and articulate uh, person right there at the TMZ office, uh, African American man that challenged him, and this was somebody that he looked up to Kanye, saw him as a hero, and a va- and he just you know really challenged him respectfully but thoughtfully um, that this direction and that he's going in in a way that he's trying to reinterpret history and whatnot was really really flawed. And in terms of why I felt the need to uh, speak on it. Um, was because I think that those comments, not only are they dangerous, but they are very similar to the types of what I would refer to as ahistorical approaches to understanding conversations about race and the history of inequality in this country. What I mean by that is so... Basically, a lot of when I I get into these conversations a lot and um, and again, divided by faith is super helpful in helping me understand how people get there. But when all you when the majority of how you see the world works is individual interactions. Right. So system systematically, structurally, we're, you know, God bless America. We're fair. We're just. The police do what they're supposed to do. The courts do what they're supposed to do. So all we have is a few bad apples that dress up in hooded, pointy costumes or skinheads. And those are the problems. So as a result of that, the people that are talking about these problems of race and racism and injustice, they they're in this perspective that I'm describing, they are at best misled and wrong, at worst, like intentionally deceiving people to for some other type of political gain, and um, and so be, of course you can't rectify a problem if you refuse to acknowledge that there is even a problem to rectify. And in fact, when you say that there is no problem to rectify, then the people who are saying that there's a problem are actually the problem, right? You follow that? So. So what Kanye's position, it, I, I felt like it was important to speak about because it also is the same idea, right? The idea of as long as you just work hard and, you know, just do the right things and stay out of trouble, then you'll be fine is the same idea as if the slaves, if, you know, those millions of enslaved Africans would have just wake, waken up and realized I'm a free thinker, I can just... You know, I'm the captain of my fate, the captain of my soul. Then I can just decide to, you know, shake these shackles off and be free. And of course, that is completely false. And you know, like we have a historical record of people when they tried to, you know, revolt against slave ships and were mass murdered, or you tried to revolt, like in, you know, even physically, you know, looking at Nat Turner or. John Brown or all and, and not only were they were those rebellions squashed every single person that was associated with it or might have been associated with it or might have known somebody associated with it was summarily executed oftentimes brutally as a as because when you're trying to keep a, a system in place 
then you have to make an example out of the people that, you know, um, that decide not to. And so, uh, interestingly, going back to Black Panther, uh, there's a scene at the end where Killmonger, uh, where, you know, Black Panther tries to, you know, save him. He's kind of almost mortally wounded, but he can kind of, you know, they have the technology to rescue him. And he's, and he refuses. And he says, you know, um, you know, bury me in the ocean with my ancestors who chose, you know, because they knew that um, that death was better than slavery. And the most powerful moment, most powerful moment. I mean, my husband and I both cried at that. That moment. Yeah, that was a very that was the line of the movie. And I think the thing that was interesting is that I kind of wrote this. So my blog post was between Killmonger and Kanye because essentially Killmonger's vision uh, for the world was we need to basically do unto others as they've done unto us. So like, you know, eye for mm-hmm. an eye, tooth for a tooth, we're going to go in and, and, and assert power. Um, but Kanye, you know, but in any case, the big point is that he also reveals that there was a choice. The choice was death. The choice of for for most people of 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 pushing against that system was death, not simply free thinking and emancipating yourself that way. And and I think the same and the reason why that's such an important conversation is because it's a similar conversation to what we have to realize is happening today. That um, when people speak out against injustice, when they speak out against um, racism. Um, they're oftentimes met with the same type of, uh, of resistance and rejection as people were then, not to the same degree of slavery, but a marginalization that still occurs. You know, I think about, um, Jamel Hill in ESPN, or you look in the sports arena, you know, and see, uh, you know, this just happened uh, this week where the Philadelphia Eagles were, um, you know, disinvited from the White House and in the disinvitation, because most of them weren't planning on coming. So that was it. But in the disinvitation, uh, the president says that they aren't coming because they decide that they don't support my insistence that people honor our troops and honor the flag. And and they don't they don't. So basically what he said is they don't like the fact that I tell people to stand up for the national anthem. And and what was interesting was none of the Philadelphia Eagles knelt the whole year for during the national anthem. And um, and so they kind of talked about how that was a misrepresentation of, you know, their position. Um, But oftentimes when you uh, raise critiques about a society, um, your criticisms get misrepresented and distorted and called something that they weren't. And I'm not trying to be super, you know, political. I'm just using mm-hmm. that as an example mm-hmm. of how there's often a cost. And so I think Kanye's comments kind of legitimized, and he was very much supported by people who agreed with that view. And they felt like because this is a black person saying it, it has more weight behind it. And now I can be more free and bold to share these kind of ideas that are just ahistorical. They're just not factually true, um, but they fit into a certain way of looking at the world so they get supported and and lifted up. And I just think that that is important for us to renounce and to speak about. And so as I look through the scriptures and I try to apply those principles into the world around me, I go, okay, yeah, this is not 
this is a place where we have to talk about and have to critique, especially when it's somebody that's high profile and, and significant. Now, there's some conversation that Kanye just did it for publicity because his album just came out. And so, you know, he hasn't really tweeted about anything else as it relates to any of that kind of type of viewpoint at all. And he has a history whenever his album is about to come up of shaking, you know, stirring the pot and getting people to talk about him by, you know, and kind of trolling us. So there's a a major theory that exists that Kanye was just trolling us primarily so that he could get a whole demographic of people supporting him that normally wouldn't support him and also just get his profile up so that when his album dropped, people were paying attention to it in a way that they wouldn't have before. And that's kind of classic Kanye. So that might be also what's going on. But I just think it's important for us as believers to be able to speak kind of thoughtfully and clear, clearly about what we're seeing around us. Mm-hmm. Have you been a fan of Yeezy's music in the past? Uh, I mean, no. no. I mean, I, I think... Uh, my break came with him with Jesus Walks back almost, you know, probably close to more than 15 years ago. Um, I'll, I'll say it this way. You can't, if you're a fan of hip hop and if you're reaching millennials, like you can't escape the fact that he is one of the most talented people that are in that genre. And some would say in any genre right now, or, you know, he's a producer as well as, well as a, a rapper and a writer and has produced many people's you know albums as well um so from a talent standpoint um his ability is undeniable um i wouldn't i wouldn't i haven't considered myself a fan because you know i am just someone that's kind of wired where lyrics matter to me statements matter to me and i am so distracted by hearing something that is troubling that i can't get to the part where i'm buying i'm supporting this music and supporting this work because it sounds good that's just mm-hmm. kind of where i'm at um mm-hmm. and uh and so i wouldn't say i'm a fan but i would say that i kind of pay attention uh you know to you know who he is and his um his uh his career um just because in order to connect with um people that I reach out to um you have to yeah my kids are really into Drake's song God's Plan they love it since you're into lyrics what is your take on that song yeah it's um I'm familiar with it I um can't say that I I've listened to it like maybe once just because there was a lot of um a lot of discussion about uh about the video and the fact that he gave, he was just giving money away mm-hmm. and it was like people were really mm-hmm. um, supportive and celebrating, um, you know, what he was doing in that context. Um, you know, just, in a, you know, so I, I know just the kind of basic idea of, you know, the song. I mean, hey, anytime that people are associating um, a sense of kind of generosity uh, with God, I think that's a, a good thing. Um, but, you know, um, I, to me, I, this is my, you know, having a daughter, uh, 20 years old and I went, I wrestled through this whole music thing and cultural influence thing. And especially she's an artistic person as well. So she was even more driven to the arts than I think, you know, maybe typical. And I had to realize a long time ago that instead of trying to, you know, at at the appropriate age, instead of trying to monitor, really at any age now I think about it, and nowadays, um, instead of trying to 
prevent her from listening to things that I thought were not uh, biblically grounded, that it would be better for me to help her to have a biblical worldview with which to discern and evaluate and critique what she was listening to. And, um, and fortunately, uh, long term, that has been a much better approach that um, I could, you know, you know, say instead of just saying, don't watch this, don't listen to this, say, OK, what how does this you know, what are the redemptive value aspects of what you just saw? What are the good things? You know, what are some things that are problematic or that are inaccurate? And I think being um, more uh, critical as a consumer, I found has been a much more effective approach than uh, trying to stave off. Because in the digital age, you can't anyway. I mean, yeah. you know, when I was growing yeah. up, you had, you know, you had to buy music or you had to go to the store and get, you know, and it's like now you just download it, YouTube, you don't even got to buy it, you know, it's just there. Yeah. And so it's just impossible to try to monitor that. And so I just try to create, give people the tools that they need to, to understand how to think about it differently. Who are the people in the media who you feel like have um, a powerful influence in the right direction that we should be, that we could be following and learning from? And yeah, um, I think uh, it's funny. Um, like, because the song that I paid more attention to from Drake was, uh, you know, All for What. Um, uh, I'm, you know, and the the you know the song uh, that he did uh, with all the women. I'm nice for what? I'm sorry, nice for what? Um, I was thinking of something else, but in any case, nice for what? Where it was like this celebration of women, um, and it was all these famous uh, women that were in the song, uh, in the video. Um, and I think there's a lot of value that you know, especially one of my critiques with hip hop has been um just the objectification of women the you know oftentimes very sexualized uh depictions um and so uh in lyrics and in images and so you know to have someone kind of celebrating you know you know women like um Issa Rae who's you know a writer of Insecure and um you know and just people like Tracy Ellis Ross, you know, from Blackish, um, you know, I think those are just really, that's a, that's, that contributes to culture in a way that's productive and helpful. Um, in terms of some of the folks that I like to listen to, um, you know, um, obviously, well, there are people like Lecrae who I've, you know, really enjoyed Jack, Jackie Hill Perry, uh, uh, from Humble Beast, um, just put out an album, Crescendo, which has just been amazing. Um, she's really talented. Um, you know, um, Propaganda has also been somebody I've, I've really enjoyed a lot. Andy Minio, um, you know, some of those uh, artists. Uh, and, um, but even, you know, I've paid a lot of attention to uh, Kendrick Lamar. Um, and, uh, you know, I uh, found a lot of, that he said a lot of good things. He's also, you know, Says some, you know, his last album uh, was one that sparked a lot of controversy because it highlighted the Hebrew Israelite, um, you know, kind of religion um, in a in a way that caused some, uh, gave them a lot of pro profile. And so I actually did a podcast about um, what they believe and how to 
how do we respond as Christians uh, to that? But he also spoke a lot about, you know, issues of oppression and things like that. So, um, but I kind of value podcasts um, and, uh, and and just being able to learn and hear and kind of do deeper dives. I actually just went to uh, the live uh, recording of Pass the Mic. Oh, you did? Yeah. And it was in New York. So I got to meet Jamar Tisby and uh, Tyler Burns, um, um, Oladi, who's, uh, she's, you know, one of the folks that producers help out with the show there. And it was a great, uh, you know, experience to listen to um, informed views about from uh, committed Christians who also have thought very seriously about you know, culture and the world in which we live. Truth's Table is another uh, of my, you know, just favorite things to listen to. Uh, there are three women. Um, uh, one is uh, Dr. Christina Edmondson. She's a, a, pr- a professor um, at a Christian college, uh, Akemeni um, Udwan, who uh, is a graduate of Westminster Theological Seminary and uh, self-described anti-racist. So she talks very prophetically about doing the work of anti-racism, which is kind of a different approach than the idea of racial reconciliation, um, because sometimes racial reconciliation skates over the fact that that's really more of a theological concept of the fact that we all need to be reconciled as humanity. But in a historical setting, there really was never a relationship to be reconciled with from the beginning when it comes to white and black in our country. Like, so it's really conciliation, right? It's really like, how do we deconstruct the oppressive systems that are there? So okay, that's her. And then Michelle Higgins, uh, who's, and, and all three of them together, they've given me a lot of good insight uh, of perspectives of black women. Um, and then the last one I listened to is Church Politics. Um, it's uh, by these two uh, folks, Justin uh, Gaboni and Michael Ware, and they really try to um, talk about the issues of the day in politics, but from the standpoint that tries to uh, critique the left and the right in a way that you don't really get if all you're getting your news from is Fox News or MSNBC. And um, and so they do a good job of just allowing you to hear and stay up on those type of things. So I've been listening to more of those type of folks to, to get perspective. But then again, like I said, art in general, I think you just got to, you know, uh, as they say about preaching sometimes and when you listen to like eat the meat and spit out the bones. And um, as as Christians, I, I got this from Andy Crouch in his book, Culture Making, uh, which I think is really important, where he's like, as Christians, we've become we typically defer to critiquing culture than we do trying to produce culture and trying to celebrate what are the redemptive elements of it. And that posture just makes us like curmudgeons who are just very critical. And so and that's my posture. I, I naturally go there. Um but, you know, so like when Jesus Christ Superstar appeared, you know, on Easter Sunday and I had never seen the mo- the, the play before or anything. So I, I was very vexed that there was no resurrection in it. And um, as opposed to and I'm like, yeah, that's true. But it's also true that Jesus Christ presented in a positive light was on national television and how can that spark conversations that I can use? And so I think it's just a matter of something. That's just a, a posture shift thing. It goes from feeling like I have the right to have the way that I um, understand my faith to be cons- pushed as normative 
uh, versus saying, okay, that may, I might have that right, but it's not happening. Instead of just continuing to complain and point that out all the time, maybe I should, you know, see how I can be into the, how I can enter into the conversation. Kind of like what Paul did at, you know, Mars Hill. Right. In Acts 17. Hey, I see you're very religious. He doesn't start the conversation. Well, wait a minute. You guys are idolaters and y'all need to stop this. And this is terrible. Y'all don't know who God is. Y'all got it all wrong. He says, hey, I see that you're very religious in a complimentary way. You even have a statue to an unknown God. Let me tell you something. What you call is unknown. I'd like to reveal who that God is. And he started from a point of common ground and went from there. And I think that's a p- approach that I think is more effective and, and more relevant for where we are today. Rasul, we're almost out of time, but I want to circle back to the Avengers because I know you said your city millennial team is, you're like the Avengers. Which Avenger do you identify with? <laughs> Have you thought about this? Wow. Um, hmm. Um... I feel like I have to answer this two ways because initially I got to go Black Panther just because, well, he's the black one. (laughs) Um, But also because his journey of, in the movie of himself, really was a journey of understanding his history and in a new way. And it's ironic because when you think about it, I think in a lot of ways, what I think white evangelical Christians are kind of, are able to get the opportunity to do in our culture is very similar to what T'Challa had to do in Black Panther in that he had to look at a society and a tradition that he had only seen as noble and, and honorable. And all of a sudden he discovers that there's something that has been some hidden secrets about that that have um, been really problematic. And now he has to go and decide to right that wrong. And, and what, do we, what, is, what does he do and how do you wrestle with that? And, um, and I think that that's a very profound and powerful um, you know, reality that as Americans, for a lot of us, or you know, as, you know, for those who are, you know, who are white or just you know, Christians, um, that there's a lot of things about our story and about our history and about the legacy that has been rightly critiqued, right? Like Killmonger wasn't wrong in his critique. He was wrong in the way that he decided to try to solve the problem with the critique. But the, the, the true power, I feel like, of the Black Panther comes when he decides, I'm not going to just agree with everything that I've been told, even by the people that I cherish the most, but I'm going to critique that and I'm going to chart a different path. And, um, and on top of that, I love his ability to run as fast as cars and <laughs> be agile and have vibranium that is, into, you know, so I, so I, I'd have to go there. Um, I really enjoy him. I, personality type, um, people refer, refer, often refer to me more as a Captain America. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, I, I kind of have that Boy Scout streak in me, um, and kind of, you know, think about, uh, you know, the, you know, try to, you know, do the right thing and, and, you know, and also, you know, kind of try to not just see where I fit into it, but how, how do, how do I lead out of that? And so, uh, I, I very much enjoyed and civil war was up until black Panther, uh, was my favorite Marvel, uh, movie that came out too. So, yeah. 
Well, thanks for being with us today. I appreciate your time. It's been good to learn more about you and meet you even for the first time. Likewise. Thanks for having me.